Morning. We're coming to the end of our series in the book of Esther. And in these chapters that we're looking at this morning, we finally see the invisible God of Esther bringing about his purposes. We've been thinking about this for the past few weeks, for the fact that this God, who is totally invisible in the book of Esther, never mentioned once by name, is all the same working out his purposes in the background. And we finally get to see God bringing his purposes to an end in these chapters. And we get to see God work in ways that both can excite us and also frighten us. But perhaps the most striking sense of these chapters, 8 to 10, of Esther, is the sense of celebration in these chapters, particularly in chapter 9 and 10. See, the Jews in Persia celebrate the fact that God's purposes have finally been fulfilled, against the odds and just in time. And it's this sense of celebration I want us to be thinking about this morning as we look at these chapters. Because I think there's a real challenge for us as we read the end of Esther today. The challenge is, do we celebrate in God's purposes in the way the Persian Jews do here? Do we celebrate God's character as he reveals himself both in judging his enemies and in saving his people? Do we not only trust the invisible God, do we also rejoice in him and see that what he does, his purposes, are good and praiseworthy? Now when we come to the end of the book like Esther, we begin to see just how important endings are in any story. And perhaps you've had the experience of watching a film or reading a book and you've really been enjoying it, but then the ending comes along and and it can let you down sometimes. It feels maybe rushed, or it isn't satisfying, or it doesn't make sense. And one film director I really admire, actually, is a director called M. Night Shyamalan. I think that's how you pronounce it. He directed such movies as The Sixth Sense, and The Village, and Signs. I don't know if people here have seen any of those movies. And his films are famous for their twist endings, for endings that change everything that has gone before. And a lot of people really hate the way he ends his films. But I personally think his endings are very clever and they do force us to think back over everything that's gone before and interpret it in the light of what's happened at the very end. So we've really got to look back and think, well, what was really going on there? And again, the book of Esther is like that. The end of Esther shows us that even though we've not always been able to trace the hand of God at work in the lives of Esther and Mordecai, we come to the end, finally things begin to make a bit more sense. We begin to see what God has been doing in the lives of his people. And the whole Bible's description of the Christian life, and perhaps more importantly of God's purposes for the whole world to glorify his name, put a lot of significance into the ending of the story. See, some worldviews and religions don't see endings as very important. And for example, Buddhism and Hinduism would see life as more circular. They don't like to think of life as headed for a particular destination as such. It's more a sense of life will just carry on and we'll just keep going around and we'll basically come to the same points again and again. You could say those worldviews take more of a sort of a soap opera feeling to a story. Um, I have to confess I'm a a fan of Neighbours and have been since I was um, a student, the Australian soap opera that is. Um, But as I watch it, I realise that the series isn't heading towards a particular ending. I mean, it's designed just to keep on going. New characters come in, old characters leave, 
And again, it just is meant to exist like that. And if the series ever did end, the ending wouldn't be that decisive. Basically, that's what it's there for. The soap opera is there just to keep going. Well, you may or may not be pleased to know that God's purposes, as he's revealed them to us in his word, are more like an M. Night Shyamalan film than an Australian soap opera. The ending is really important in God's purposes. So that's true of our individual Christian lives on one level. Again, we can sometimes put a lot of stock in the beginning of our Christian lives, in first coming to trust in Jesus. But the Bible puts a lot more weight on remaining faithful to Christ throughout our lives. We maybe have a very exciting beginning to our Christian lives, but then sometimes we can fall into apathy or disobedience in our lives. In a sense, the Christian life should be like a marriage. The longer the marriage goes on, the less important it is what the wedding ceremony was like, what the wedding reception was like. The really important thing is the quality of the relationship in that marriage. And it's the same in our Christian lives. What is the quality of our relationship today with Christ? Not just how did it begin all those years ago, all those months ago maybe. As we look at the ending of Esther this morning, we're going to see that this ending is like a tiny picture of the great ending to God's story. The ending of all of God's purposes in history. It's an imperfect picture. It doesn't tell us everything we need to know about that ending. But it does tell us a lot about God's purposes for this world. And the Apostle Paul summarized what God's purposes are for creation in his letter to the Ephesians. He said the purpose was to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. So as I've already said, the Jews in Persia, when they experienced this ending to their story, they rejoice and they celebrate in God's purposes. And the challenge for us is, do we do that? Do we look forward and long for the ending of God's story? Do we long for God to bring about that end to his story and for his son Jesus to be declared finally, once and for all, king over all creation? And the testimony of the Bible is that when we truly understand God's character, when we see just how good and gracious and glorious he is, then we too will long for that ending. We'll long for that time when we'll see him for who he really is and his purposes will be fulfilled completely in our lives and in creation. So turning to these final chapters then of Esther, what does this ending tell us about the ending of God's purposes for history and for us? Well again, the story so far, we'll rattle through that for those maybe who haven't been here the last few weeks. Esther and Mordecai are Jews living in exile in Persia. And the book of Esther tells the story of how this invisible God behind the scenes uses Esther and Mordecai to bring about his purposes. And we've seen throughout this book that Esther and Mordecai are very real people. They are normal people. They're sinful people. Forced to live for God in a dangerous world that fails to acknowledge him. They aren't prophets or religious leaders. Esther becomes a pagan queen at the beginning of the book, and Mordecai is a civil servant. But God overlooks that. God uses them in their positions of influence for a purpose. And that purpose becomes clearer as the book goes on. 
So him and the Agagites in chapter 3, the enemy of the Jews, is promoted to second in command in the kingdom and he uses his power to plan for the complete annihilation of the Jews. And it looks as if Haman has succeeded when the king agrees to his request. But then Mordecai and Esther hear of the plot and it quickly becomes clear that this is the reason God has placed them where they are. After some persuading from Mordecai, Esther steps in, risks her life to persuade the king to put an end to Haman's plot. And slowly and skillfully, she reveals the plot to Xerxes in such a way that the king has Haman executed at the end of chapter 7. And so does chapter 8. And you might be tempted to think, well, surely the story has ended now. The enemy of the Jews is dead. Esther's plan to expose him has worked. So what more is there to tell in this story? Well, as we begin chapter 8, we can see the story isn't over yet because Haman's vindictive hatred of the Jews continues from beyond the grave. Just read verses 3 to 8 again. Esther pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then verse 7, King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. See, Esther begs her husband Xerxes to overrule this decree to wipe out the Jews. But once again in the book, we see that the almighty King Xerxes' power is a lot more limited than he ever would admit to. In verse 8 he says, No document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Xerxes cannot simply cancel Haman's decree. Even the king cannot overturn a decree of the Persian Empire. So at the beginning of chapter 8, Esther's people, God's people, are still in danger. They are still at risk. Haman may be dead, Haman may be defeated, but his decree could still wipe out the Jews if Esther and Mordecai don't act. And then chapter 8 and 9 is an account of what they do in response to that. In verse 8, Xerxes suggests they write another decree in the king's name, this one to counteract Haman's decree. And that's what Mordecai does in verses 9 and following. So the Jews are told that on the day decreed by Haman, the day in which Haman had intended to lead all the enemies of the Jews in wiping them out, they now have the right to assemble and to protect themselves. Verse 11. And the decree goes on to parallel the language of Haman's decree to show just how complete this protection will be for the Jewish people. That's in verse 11 saying they can assemble to protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. See, this reversal is complete. The Jews are completely secure now with this new decree from the king. And when they hear about it across Persia, the Jews celebrate they know what this means. They know the day on which they were going to be wiped out is now the day in which they're going to be rescued from their enemies. Now the second in command to the king 
is a Jew, Mordecai. They are safe. They are now secure in the Persian Empire. And so they celebrate. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 8. For the Jews it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. See, and this is their God at work again, reversing a day of despair and turning into a day of joy, a day of triumph for his people. See, God is working out his purposes in Esther's life. And his purposes are revealed to be good, to be for their benefit, to be to save their lives. See, there's often some debate among scholars as to who the real hero of the book of Esther is. Um, a lot of people argue strongly for Esther herself. They say, well, the na- book's named after her. She's the hero of this book. Other people say it's Mordecai. Mordecai's really the hero of this book. And both characters are very active in these closing chapters. But as ever in Scripture, the real hero is revealed at the end to be God himself. To be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a Christian here today, then it's your great God who the book of Esther urges you to celebrate, to rejoice in. You're to praise him for the fact that through this book, he has fulfilled two purposes that always run parallel throughout his word. We're to praise God because he's the God who judges his enemies and who saves his people. And we need to look at those two aspects together Because the Bible never separates them. The book of Esther doesn't separate them. And neither should we separate them. See, judgment and salvation have always gone together in God's purposes. The Garden of Eden, right back at the beginning of the Bible. Just as God is judging Adam and Eve and throwing them out of of Eden for disobeying him, he promises them there will be a saviour who will come from Eve's offspring who will destroy the serpent and reverse the curse in that garden. Then the exodus from Egypt. At the same time as God is saving the Israelites from slavery, he's judging the Egyptians. The Red Sea the Israelites walk through is the sea that drowns their oppressors. And so it is with Esther, chapter 9. Looking at judgment first, just take a look at the first half of Esther, chapter 9. And you can't get away from it. God is a God who judges his enemies. I'll just read verses 5 to 10 of chapter 9. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashtha, Arisai, Aradai, and Baistha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. See again, the writer is going to great lengths to show just how complete the Jews' victory is here. And the threat posed by Haman is finally overcome with the death of his ten sons. Now presumably Haman's sons were killed while they were attacking the Jews in Susa, seeking to avenge their father's death. But they failed And the writer wants us to know and record their names to show that Haman did not succeed in his plot to kill God's people. Basically, Haman has been judged by God. And the writer also goes to some lengths to show this was not a massacre 
of non-Jews in Persia. When you look at what chapter 9 describes, it was only the enemies who attacked the Jews that the Jews were permitted to fight and to defend themselves. And three times in verses 10, 15 and 16 of chapter 9, the writer emphasizes that the Jews did not lay their hands on the plunder. See, the Jews were not out of control here. Even though Mordecai's decree allowed them to take that plunder, they decided not to. Both to be wise in a way, to win the support of their neighbours, but also to show they did not want to get rich on the proceeds of their enemies. So again, this is not a massacre. It's not the Jews running out of control in chapter 9. There is a sense of control over their actions here. But there are difficult bits of this description in chapter 9. A difficult aspect comes in verse 13, where Esther asks King Xerxes for an extra day in which the Jews in Susa could defend themselves from their enemies. And Xerxes grants her request for that. And some readers fear that Esther is getting a bit bloodthirsty here and using her influence over the king in an ungodly way. And we've just got to acknowledge that the writer doesn't pass judgment on Esther here. He doesn't say whether she's right to do this or wrong to do this. It's certainly a possibility the extra day was necessary in the city of Susa. See, Esther doesn't ask for more time elsewhere in the empire. And in chapter 5 of the book, it makes it clear that Haman had a lot of friends and allies in Susa who may have kept on attacking the Jews beyond that first day. But whether or not Esther is going too far in asking for an extra day, there's still enough imagery in this chapter to tell us about the character of the invisible God of this book. The second half of chapter 9 describes what our response to that God should be. When the Jews hear that they have defeated their enemies, they've survived this day of slaughter, they have celebrations and they call a great feast in the second half of chapter 9. Just read verse, in chapter 9, verses 20 and 22. Mordecai recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote to them to observe the days of days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. This is the beginning of the Feast of Purim, a very popular feast even today with Jews, a time of celebration and feasting at God's salvation. You see, God had judged his enemies. He'd saved his people. And the Jewish response was one of joy here. So what should a Christian make of all this? What should a Christian's response be in looking at these closing chapters of Esther? In chapters that are, admittedly, quite bloodthirsty to our eyes. See, the New Testament is clear. We too, if we're Christians, serve a God who judges his enemies and who saves his people. The thing is, we're generally very happy about the salvation part of that and the joy part of that. It's the judgment part. It's the fear part that we don't like and we shy away from. I think it's particularly a problem for Christians in the West. Christians living where we're relatively free from persecution or oppression. Often we are offended by the idea that God's people should rejoice in God's judgment. 
Again, as a teenager, I had a Bible where I'd underline large bits of the Psalms just to remind me of God's love and care over my life. And I got that Bible down recently and I saw that all the Psalms, I'd be underlining huge bits of them. Any verse that talked about God's judgment, I would skip over. I didn't want to think about that side of God's character. I wanted just to know that God loved and cared for me. Not that God actually is a God who will judge people one day. See, why is that? Why do we struggle so much with this idea of God as a judge? I can think of at least three reasons, two of which the Bible would really seek to correct us on. But the third one we do need to meditate on to understand it. See, one reason why we're uncomfortable with this could be when we come to bits of the Bible, like Esther 9, all we can see is one group of people killing another. And that makes us uncomfortable, and it should. Particularly today, we're all very aware of the situation going on in the Middle East. We witness the bombardment of Lebanon by Israeli forces on the one hand, and the Hezbollah rocket attacks on Israel on the other. And we might be tempted to think that a story of the Jews triumphing over their enemies is just inappropriate at this time in history. But we need to see that Esther 9 is not a manifesto on how to fight a war between Jew and Gentile or how to defend the state of Israel. Instead, we need to see Esther 9 as describing a unique moment in salvation history. See, throughout this series in Esther, we've tried to show how Esther's situation is like ours. How the situation Esther and Mordecai find themselves in is very similar to the situation of Christians living in 21st century Britain. But we always need to remember at the same time that this book does describe a particular moment in history, a unique moment in salvation history, 400 years before the coming of Christ. And to put it simply, if Haman's plans to wipe out the Jews had succeeded, then Jesus would never have been born. See, we forget that Esther and Mordecai are playing a vital role in the coming of Jesus here. Because they averted the destruction of the Jews, they averted the destruction of the line of David, and it was from that line that Jesus would be born 400 years later. And as we know, Jesus came to save not just the Jews, but people from every tribe and nation and language in this world. So God granted the Jews victory over their enemies in Persia to keep his covenant commitment to bless the whole world through the Jewish people, through his son, Jesus. But another problem we have with God's judgment is that without thinking, we're often guilty of remaking God in our own image. So we want God to be reasonable and polite and gentle. So the idea of him judging people as well as saving people just doesn't fit into that. But again, the challenge for us is if we're going to accept God's revelation of himself through his word in its entirety, we need to see that God is bigger than any of the boxes we would like to place him in. See, more than that, we need to see that when we compare the judging God of Scripture with the polite God of our own making, it's only the God of Scripture that is worth praising at all. See, our apparently loving, gentle God is quickly revealed to be an unfeeling, unjust monster if we look more closely at him. See, if God judges no one, 
then the choices we make in our lives are totally meaningless. So is right and wrong, good and evil. They mean nothing to us. If God judges no one, then the rich and the powerful get away with murder, with no comeback. Joseph Stalin can kill millions, die of old age, and then go straight to heaven. War criminals will never be held to account for the crimes they've committed. Oppressive regimes can get rich of the death of their people and then just go straight to heaven as a result. There is no hope of justice if God does not judge. And a God who doesn't judge is actually a monster. As one person once put it, the opposite of love is not anger, it's not wrath, it's indifference. It's not caring at all. And God judges his enemies because he he cares about the choices we make. He cares about the people who reject him, who hurt him and hurt other people, who exploit his world. So actually, the fact that God judges his enemies is a reason to rejoice in his character. It's something we should celebrate in the same way the Jews in Persia celebrated in his judgment. And it's certainly a deeply precious truth for Christians around the world today. Christians who are persecuted for standing up for Jesus. Persecuted for following Christ in their lives. Again, we're free from the opposition and persecution in this country. And it's right for us to be thankful for that. But we cannot afford to forget people who are suffering. Who are suffering terrible atrocities. For them, the news that God will judge their enemies is actually a precious truth. I just want to read to you just a few very brief accounts for the most recent issue of Evangelicals Now. I just picked up a random one and looked at some accounts and just thought, this is what is going on in the world we live in. In Egypt. Egypt appears to have forgotten its promises to investigate the April 14th stabbing of Christians in Alexandria. Egyptian leaders were quick to condemn the church knife attacks that left one Christian dead and more than a dozen wounded. In an effort to quell the ensuing two days of clashes, Egypt's parliament announced the formation of a fact-finding committee charged with investigating the cause of the attacks and reporting its findings within 30 days. More than one month later, the committee has yet to be formed. The fear for those Christians is that the authorities have forgotten what has happened. But God's word tells us God has not forgotten. Eritrea. Two days after an evangelical Christian mother was arrested from her home and jailed by Eritrean police, her six-month-old son died in Nephesit, ten miles east of Asmara. Genet Gebrabrim was arrested on May the 8th with two other Protestant women, also mothers with children, and members of Nephesit's banned full gospel church. They were detained on accusations of actively witnessing about Christ. Two days later, her baby, Hazael Daniel, died of unknown causes. Subsequently, the mother was released on bail. The other two mothers remain in police custody. And in India, at 10 o'clock p.m. on May 28th in Nadia village, Kargon district, Madhya Pradesh, a group of five Hindus, dragged the wives of two Christians out of their homes and gang-raped them. As the women's husbands tried to intervene, they were brutally beaten. The attack came after the council of a neighbouring village attempted to force the husband of one victim to renounce his faith. 
we look at those accounts, when we don't know the people involved, we can still be left cold by them. But we shouldn't. These are our brothers and sisters. And for them, the promise of justice, the promise of God's judgment, is deeply precious. And again, I hope you saw in those accounts, they're not sitting waiting for their enemies to be judged. They're not just sitting hoping one day God will punish these people. They're actively going out and seeking to share Jesus with these people. So they can be forgiven. So they can become God's people too. And that's why they're getting killed and raped and imprisoned. See, God's judgment is not something we should apologise about. It's something we actually need if we're to keep going and trusting in Jesus. See, what about us in this country in relative freedom and safety? Do we trust that God will reward us for following him, even when that might bring great difficulty or opposition here? See, so often when I look at my heart, all I want is a quiet life, a happy life here and now, with, if I'm really honest, plenty of health and plenty of wealth. But that isn't the pattern for God's people. It wasn't the pattern of life for Esther and Mordecai. They were facing death throughout most of the book of Esther. It wasn't the pattern of life for the early Christians who were persecuted for following Christ. And it isn't the pattern of life for Christians today, both around the world where they're persecuted and also in this country today. We will suffer in this life. And God's word promises us that. Some will suffer direct opposition for their faith. Some will face sickness and loneliness as part of living in this world. Some will suffer from particular sins, particular weaknesses that will always be a problem for them. And the challenge for us is, how will we endure that suffering? How will we get ready and prepare ourselves for the suffering that will come if it hasn't already? And the only answer for us is that we can trust in this God. We can trust in a God who will judge his enemies and who will save and reward his people. See, instead of a life of health and wealth, we will suffer. But that suffering will be followed by glory. See, that is the pattern of the Christian life right throughout Scripture. Suffering followed by glory, followed by reward. See, as we leave Esther and Mordecai at the end of the book, of Esther. We leave them enjoying the rewards of their faithfulness. See, Esther is firmly established as queen. She is far more secure in her position than her predecessor Vashti was. While Mordecai is now second only to King Xerxes. And he uses his power wisely for the good of his people in chapter 10. See, Esther and Mordecai are being rewarded here for their faithfulness. And a question might follow on is, did they deserve that reward? And the answer is no. They didn't deserve an reward any more than we do. But the God they served is a God who rewards his people out of his grace, out of his generosity to them. You see, the final concern we can have about God's judgment is a legitimate one. 
Where does the fact that God judges people leave me? See, it's one thing to rejoice that Stalin and persecutors of Christians around the world will one day be judged. It's quite another to look in our own hearts and see the same sin, the same struggles that those people have given into. The fear of a Stalin, the hatred of a Hitler, the greed of a Robert Mugabe, they are all in our hearts as well. So how can we know that we will not be judged if this God we trust in is a judging God? It's right for us to be aware of our sin. It's right for us to react to God's judgment in that way. Not to be smug, not to think, yeah, that deals with those people over there. We need to look at our own hearts as well, always at the same time, confessing our sin, realising we too deserve that judgment. But then also seeing that if we have asked God to forgive us, if we have asked God to make us righteous with his son Jesus, then actually we have nothing to fear on that day of judgment. See, the book of Esther tells us the God who judges is the God who saves. And those two aspects of his character meet perfectly at the cross of Christ. See, on that cross, God judged the sins of everyone who trusts in his Son by placing them onto Christ and pouring out his wrath on them. And because of the cross... God calls those who trust in Christ righteous. They are not guilty. They are pure and clean now from their sin. And they're deeply loved and cherished because of the great price God has paid for them. The death of his son, Jesus. See, God judged our sin and saved his people at the same time on the cross. And everyone who cries out to the crucified Jesus to forgive them is declared righteous by God. And God is committed to rewarding him or her in the new creation. Because that new creation is the ending of God's story, is the reward for God's people that affects everything else that has gone before. And the end of Esther ends with a feast, a celebration of God's purposes. And the book of Revelation tells us that the story of God's purposes for all of history will also end with a feast, with a banquet in heaven. Just read some words from Revelation 19. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. See, the reward for God's people is a feast, is a banquet. It's the wedding supper of the Lamb. And there are so many rewards that will be poured out on us on that day, if we are trusting in Christ. Many great rewards. No more death. No more pain. No more suffering. But there is one reward that will outstrip all of them. And that ultimate reward will be married life as the bride of Christ. So the ultimate reward will be that we will see the God 
who's made us. The God who loves us and the God who gave the most precious thing he had to save us. And we will finally understand just how glorious and gracious and good that God is. See, like Esther and Mordecai, we can't see God today. But our future hope is that we will see him. We will worship him. And every single longing of our hearts will be satisfied in him. See, the ending of God's story affects how we live our lives today. We know that God will judge evil. We don't have to despair at that. We know that God will save his people and will reward them by seeing him face to face. And it's the ending of God's story we need to remember if we are to stay faithful to God in a world that rejects him and that can often reject us. I'll just finish with a few words from the Apostle Paul as he says in 1 Corinthians 15 after meditating on our future hope of the new creation he writes Therefore my dear brothers stand firm let nothing move you always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. See, Esther and Mordecai's efforts were not in vain. They were rewarded by God. And our labour in the Lord, too, will be rewarded if we remain faithful to the God who is faithful to us.